Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans chapter 12, Pastor Murphy showed us that biblical change is so difficult because our minds are being conformed to a worldly mindset. Today we'll continue to see what conforming to the world looks like and also see how the church changed this similar condition in church history. Turn with me please back to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, I'm going to read verses, begin at verse number 1, and then I'll read verse 1, but my text is actually Romans chapter 2. Follow with me, please. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How would you describe the modern church? Here's how I describe it. A passive, tolerant, timid, non-confrontational church. One that seems afraid to stand for truth because of the attendant political, social, economic, and personal and legal follow and cost to them. That's a general description of the modern church. It doesn't seem prepared to stand for anything. Some time ago, and I don't remember how long ago, um, people make statements and, you know, you don't have to pick them up and deal with them at the same time, but it gives you an idea of the mindset. Um, But it has to do with hiring the teachers. And uh, I was pretty much given the idea that you can't let the government know you don't don't hire non-Christians. We can do it, but you can't let them know. I thought that was weird. Weird. Don't you think that's weird? That a Christian school cannot say it only hires Christian teachers? What the Labour Party would only have Labour people? And UPP would only have UPP people? So I couldn't understand why the Christian church cannot say we only hire Christians. Why are we afraid? I might be old in my thinking, but I hope you understand I'm biblical as well in my thinking. When we let these little things and we give in and we give in and we get the big thing is coming when we don't have the strength or the power the courage to stand any longer. And that's why we have to understand there is an imperative that we need to change. And what I mean, we need to change our mindset. It had been so secularized. We don't even realize our way of thinking is worldly. 
Honestly, we don't even realize that. I listen to people sometimes, quite frankly, and I, I, I get where they're coming from. But it's very clear to me that it's not biblical in their thinking. I don't know if you agree with me or not, but I was thinking recently as I was going through this message, if the modern church that we have today had existed in the dark ages from 500 AD to 1500 AD, when the world was in darkness, when Rome and her superstitious beliefs controlled the world, I have said to myself, if the modern church existed, then we would never have had the Reformation. Never. We don't have the moral courage and the conviction that those men had. You know what it is to stand up one man against the whole world? That was Luther. Against the whole, I didn't say against Germany or France, against the whole world. That's the kind of courage that we're missing in the contemporary church. And the reason for that is that we have been systematically desensitized and systematically re-indoctrinated in a philosophy of worldliness and, and uh, secular ideology. But I thank God that he had a Luther, he had a Calvin, and he had a Zwingli, and he had a John Knox. Men who were willing to take a stand even at great personal cost to themselves. Because they were governed by something called the book. That mattered to them more than life itself. And they were able to achieve such phenomenal success so that we today are enjoying the fringe benefits of the Reformation. And by the way, do you know what came out of the Reformation ultimately? Are you aware of what really, really happened? What came out of this Reformation is what we call democracy. So we're enjoying democracy today because these men took a stand, putting emphasis on the individual, not the king, not the nobles, but the individual. And today, we are now enjoying the fringe benefits of their sacrifice and their life. I would like to say this this morning. It doesn't take a great band of faithful heroes to change the world and change a country. You don't need an army of saints. You just need a handful of faithful men of God. And I would add women of God too. To bring about a change in the society. That's all I want. You check any revival. You check any renewal in the church. And you will see it always started with a little handful. Never the masses. I'm saying that to say this. It is easy to get discouraged when you look around and see what is happening. It's easy to get frustrated when you see what is going on in the churches. It's either become completely distraught. That how can it get any worse? 
But I want to say this morning, there's hope. And that hope is found in when you look at church history, you discover that this problem, this plague, this dilemma of worldliness is not something new to the church. It is something that the church has had to deal with in every single dispensation of its ministry. It's not new. Every, every group of believers have had to fight what we call the world and worldliness. We now are fighting it. They gain the success. The question is, will we? That is the big issue this morning. Let me explain that this morning because I want you to go back to this passage and let me show you that this is the problem Paul was facing in the day in which he lived. Look at it again. He says, and be not conformed to this world. Let's stay with that for just a moment. Let's take that phrase and let us, uh, that, that clause, and let us, let's dissect it. Let's look at the words and just look at the grammar for just a moment so you understand what Paul is dealing with in this passage. First of all, the verb conform is what you call a present passive verb. I get a present passive verb. The voice is passive. Now, what's the significance of that? What Paul is saying here, is the, this is, let me give you a little translation of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying to these believers, stop being conformed to the world. That's what he's saying. Stop being conformed to the world. And the reason why Paul could say that is because that was what was happening in the church at the time. Stop it. He has the verb conform and he has a negative may. Now let me uh, go in a little bit further into an understanding of what Paul is really saying here in this passage. The present tense, what does that mean? The present tense in the Greek language is, the, is the, what is called the linear tense. It's a continuous tense. It is something that's continuing to happen. The aorist tense is a thing that happened here and it stops here. The perfect tense, something happened here and it continues. But in the present tense, it's a continuous thing. And that's, the, that's what he's using here. Stop it! You are allowing it! Stop it! It's time to stop in the church. That's a first century church, brethren. The second thing that we see, the verb is in a passive voice. Everybody know that when the verb is in the active voice, the subject is acting. When the verb is in the passive voice, something is being done to the subject. So what Paul is here saying, stop being so passive that you are being made conform to the world. They're being conformed and they don't even realize what is happening. It's in the passive voice. They're not actively conforming to the world. But they're being passively conformed by the world. The world is acting on them and changing them. And Paul is saying, stop it, don't allow it. Passive voice. I said last week um, that there are only two main gates that worldliness 
get into us. Two main gates. Remember what those gates were? Anybody remember? The eye gate. So that is what you watch. That's what you watch. Never forget that. That is what you watch. The second gate is what? The ear gate, what you listen to. These are two. Look, and this is where the modern man is. He's being both uh, impacted by what he sees and by what he, he hears, what he listens to. And he doesn't even realize it is transforming your mind. I used the illustration last time. You've got one or two choices. One or two choices. You can either shut off the door or you can sanitize it after it's into the door. It's like sewage. Sewage is coming into your house. What are you going to do? You cut off the sewage or you allow the sewage to come, but then you put disinfectant on it. Which is more effective? Now, I'm going to... I know where I'm going with this here because I'm going to talk about ways in which the church has conformed to the world in another message. But I don't want people to think that worldliness is just watching television or listening to music. I'm not, if you think that's what I'm saying, you're missing the whole boat. I'm not offering a moratorium that you can't watch television. That's not what I'm saying either. But what I'm saying to you that you must judiciously guard what comes into the eye and what comes into the ear. And that makes sense to everybody except the Christian. So the verb into the passive voice. And Paul is saying in this satanic mind game that is trying to influence and control your thinking, you are like a passive individual just allowing it to happen to you. You're not, he's not blaming them for doing it to themselves, you know. Otherwise, you would use the active voice, but he use a passive voice. It's happening to you, and you don't even know it's happening. Now, to give you an idea that I'm not a, a person against television, I like forensic files. One of the best pictures in my, on, on, is forensic files. I like to see how to solve cold, cold crimes and hope what people... I've seen things where um, a man is drinking arsenic for quite a while, knowing his wife is poisoning him. But then I understand that every time his hair grows, you can measure how much, when it's by the length of the hair, by just measuring it, it goes into the hair so they can know... Stuff like that. I mean, that is fascinating. Really fascinating. <laughs> but we got to be careful, brethren. We got to be careful because... Let me put it this way. If you were Satan, what would you do? To destroy the church and neutralize the test? What would you do? Tell me what you do. Tell me what you do. You'll persecute the church. You know what happens when you persecute the church? The church will grow. At no stage in church history has not the church grown when they were persecuted. Because people realize these people are serious. It seems to me that if I were the devil, the best way to destroy the church and destroy the church is to somehow inject in their minds thoughts and ideas that they're not even aware that I'm putting in there subtly, etc., etc. Does that make sense? Well, let me tell you something. If it doesn't make sense, that's exactly what is happening. That's why you're so deluded. You don't believe it is happening. Therefore, you don't put your guard on it. And the enemy has the best of you. And of course, there's a negative may. Now, let's look at the word conform. The word conform is the word systematizo. 
And it means to fashion or shape one thing like another. Okay? To fashion or shape one thing or another. So the gist of what Paul is saying is that the world is putting its impress in your mind. It's shaping you. Like it is itself, that's how it's shaping you. I think I quoted J.B. Phillips' uh, New Testament translation, which says, don't let the world fit you into its mold. I think I might have quoted that at some point in time, but that's the whole idea. The world has a certain distinct philosophy, thinking, ideology, values, attitudes. And uh, the satanic world, by the way, the world is not controlled by Gaston Brown or Biden, okay? But the truth of the matter is, whether or not that is the case, this, this, what, the, the, Satan controls the ideas in the world. Okay. All the chief leaders of major powers of the world, he controls those ideas. He's behind it all. He's called the God of this age, the God of the times. See? He, but here's the problem. Christians don't seem to believe that. You can preach that from the pulpit, but they don't seem to believe that. And I, I can't understand why it is so difficult to understand biblical teaching on this matter. Again, you know what the problem is? We've been secularized. And we don't see any connection between what's going on in the church and what's going on in the world and the synthetic mastermind that is engineering all that is happening to bring it to a climax. We don't understand that. What we see is pigmentation, color, skin, black, white, green, yellow. That's the problem. When the Bible says man's problem is not his pigmentation, it's his heart. And all people's hearts are the same. They're evil, they're corrupt, they're sinful. They have a depraved nature. See? No color has any prominence in evil. It's the heart of man that's evil. But that's a distraction. See? That's a dis- and that's why we can't solve the problems in the world, by the way. Because there's only one solution to the problem, and that is Christ. He's the only one that can change the heart. See? All the other things are putting plaster on cancers. Nothing permanent, just something temporary. And then it opens up again and festers again. What Paul is saying to us in this passage, don't be a chameleon. You know what a chameleon is? There's some lizards here. I don't know if you've got some of them. But they will go on that green tree. And if they see you coming, they'll turn the color to the green tree. You know why? They want to lose their identity. They are fearful. That you might attack them. So what do they do to change? If, 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 if they go on a brown tree and they see you coming and think you're going to hurt them, they, again, they change the color so they lose their identity. That's what the Christian does. He's a chameleon. He fits into every situation because he doesn't want to be identified as a Christian. So he goes to a cocktail party. Would you like a beer? Would you like um, vodka? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do? See? What are you going to do? See? Well, my job requires me to socialize and entertain. So I lose my identity. I blend in. Blend in. You go to a PTA meeting. 
And you hear them talk a lot of hogwash about introducing uh, to the care for this is coming this is coming that a house a home is no longer a home where you've got a mommy and a daddy but you can have two women one is the daddy and one is the mommy what are you going to do then what are you going to do silent these are coming our way we can't wait till they happen then to decide what I might start preparing for the inevitable. So if you take a stand on these matters and you lose your job, you've got something to turn to. Because if you don't take a stand, I don't see anybody else taking a stand on these matters. So we put an ad in the paper, we need a church secretary. And um, we say... We need a Christian as a church secretary. So we get all these uh, applications coming in, and we discover that one comes to an interview. They give a this, tell us how they got saved and how they make this decision, make the other decisions. And then they said, "But I, I need to let you know something. I'm a lesbian." Of a teacher. Christian, but I'm a homosexual. What do we do then? I know what I would do. I know what I would do. But the question is, and this is something that eats my soul up, who will take a stand with me on these matters? Who? Would you? Thank God there was a Paul in the first century that was not afraid to stand up against the form of worldliness that had crept into the church even in the first century. He was not afraid to say to those believers in Rome, and by the way, do you see why it is so obvious that of all the churches Paul wrote to, the one he tells them stop conforming to the world is the church in Rome. You ever thought about that for just a moment? Now remember that Rome is the capital of the world. It's a cosmopolitan city. Everything flows into Rome. The church is founded in Rome. And the world is in Rome. But the problem is this. The world begins to seep into the church. See, And that's the danger of city churches. Danger city churches. Churches in the country are so far from all that's happening. It's not that they have worldliness in another form, but not in the form that the city church finds itself. See? So here is this great church founded in Rome. And, uh, you know, it's okay when you're in the sea, Joe. When the boat is on the sea. When the sea starts getting into the boat, you're in trouble. It's okay to be in the world. But when the world starts getting into the church, that's the problem. So Paul says, cut it out. Stop being passive pawns in this sinister battle reprogramming you so that you adopt the mindset and the values of the world. Now today... 
I have felt this way sometimes. And sometimes maybe I, even for the pulpit, it might seem that I have kind of expressed this as well. But when you look at what is happening, you often ask yourself, is this the worst time the world has ever been? No, I'm serious. You don't find yourself asking, what about other Christians? I'm not, I'm not the first century pastor. Let's not talk about the first century now. But what about churches and in another, another period of time? Did they face the kind of worldliness that we face today? I can shock you right now. I can shock you right now. In many ways, it was sometimes worse than what we face today. What I did, and I want you to stay with me for just a few minutes, okay? I want to give this, the modern church, hope because sometimes we think we can't change and influence and impact the world that we are around us. Sometimes we, we attempted to give up. Pastor, how, how do we, how do we? You want, you know, the spirit of resignation is there. It's so bad, what can we do? So I want to use an illustration from church history. And I want to show you what the conditions were and how those conditions were changed by the church. I have in my possession a book written by Bishop R.C. Ryle called Christian Leaders of the 18th Century. You can go on uh, Kindle, you can buy it for 90 cents. Right. If you buy a hard copy, you might pay $60, $60 for it. We buy a Kindle, it's about 90 cents. I think that's what I pay for, oh, it's 9 cents, I can't remember. But it's a fascinating book. I was reading it, and while I was preparing uh, for today, my thought was today to illustrate to you how the world has adjusted, the church adjusted to what's going on in the world today in evangelism and in theology. I was going to do that this morning. But my thoughts rushed, rushed to that book. And I said, I remember reading something that is applicable uh, to this message. So, this book called the, uh, the Christian Leaders of the 18th Century is a book about four great evangelical pastors who transform England. No, this Antigua is a, a, a two by three. You can spit from one side of the island to the other, just like Barbados, we're small countries. England is a huge place. But these four men completely transformed the rotten British nation. So what I want to do this morning, and these four men, by the way, were John Wesley, George Whitfield, William Grimshaw, and William Romaine. Those are the few men that transformed the whole of England. I want to read the, the language. Stay with me. The plain <coughs> language of Bishop Ryle as he described the political and the religious situation of the 18th century. Listen to how he puts it. Stay with me for just a moment. He said, for the 17th century until about the era of the French Revolution, which is 1789 to 1794, about five years, England was barren to all, listen to these words, to all that was really good. Not to good, to all that was really good. He said, Christianity seemed to be one dead. In fact, it was dead in the 18th century. He said, there was darkness in the high places and darkness in the low places. There was darkness in the courts, darkness in the parliament, darkness 
in business, darkness in the church, darkness in the country, darkness in the city, darkness to the, in the rich, darkness in the poor. He said, the darkness was so thick, religiously and morally, you could cut it. That's the 18th century. Then he asked a probing question. Here's the question. He said, he asked it. Does anyone ask what the church was doing then? And then he answers the question. And this is what he says. They were existing, but could hardly be said to have life. They did nothing. They were sound asleep. He said, natural theology without a single distinctive doctrine of Christianity was being taught. He says, cold morality and barren orthodoxy reigned and was taught in the church and the chapel. He said, the church seemed agreed on one point, and that was, let the devil alone and do nothing to help men's souls and hearts. That was the church in the 18th century. And then he quotes William Blackstone, that great Christian lawyer that laid the foundation for jurisprudence in the West. And what uh, William Blackstone did that in the 18th century, he went to every single church of note in London to hear what the preachers were preaching. And this is what he wrote, and I quote, I did not hear a single sermon that had more Christianity in it than the writings of Cicero, the pagan Roman poet. He said, he said it was impossible for him to know based upon what he heard whether a preacher was a Confucius, a Mohammedan, or a Christian. That was the pulpit in the 18th century. And this is how he described the average preacher, the average clergyman in the 18th century. Listen to what he said. He said the vast majority of them were drowning in worldliness and neither knew nor cared about their profession. Couldn't care less about preaching. But they were the preachers at the time. He said they neither did good themselves nor did they like anybody doing good on their behalf. And then he adds... So how did they spend their time? How did preachers spend their time in the 18th century? And this is what he said. They spent their times hunting, farming, fishing, swearing, drinking, and gambling. That was the, that was the church in the 18th century. That was the church. And then if that was the church, what did the people of that time, how did they spend their pastime? And he said, this is how they spent their time, pastime. Jeweling. You know what jeweling was, right? I challenge you to a sword fight. And we're going to fight to the death. It's like people in the amphitheaters where the Christians were being mauled by lands and they were rejoicing. The more bloody it was, the more... That was the time. He said, number two, they spent the time in adultery. Going from house to house. One man going to another man's wife and another wife going to another man's husband. Now we think it is bad today. The world has always been what the world is. It's just that we don't see the signs of it. 
Then it says, they also spend time in fornication. We blame the young people today. They're the worst. But in the 18th century, the same thing was happening. And then it says, they spent their time in gambling. You talking about lotto? This, look how many gambling houses you have in Antigua. And then it said, swearing, drunkenness, and whorehouses. That's how the average man in the world spent his time in the 18th century. You know, as I read his words and contemplated on his thoughts, it dawned on me that we are now living in what I call a modern parallel. We are quite similar to what was going on in the 18th century. And you know what that did to me? When I learned it only took four men. John Wesley, George Whitfield, William Grimshaw, and William Rogaine to change the whole of England. I said there's hope for us. Hope for us. Don't panic. Don't panic. We must pray that God raise up a few solid good men of conviction and courage to start a new reformation and change. Don't depend on the masses. It will never happen. It always starts with a few good men of conviction and courage. So my heart, by reading what he said, it did not dismay me when I read that. And then to, he gave all of that background. And then he said, these four men changed England. As a matter of fact, I think I've told you at some other point, way in another message. Secular historians have credited John Wesley and, uh, Will, and um, George Whitfield as being the prime Madonnas that prevented England to go into a bloody revolution like the French Revolution. That is what saved England. What I'm saying to you this morning is not an army God is looking for. He's looking for a few men of real, genuine conviction and courage and loyalty to him to bring about change. Change is possible. Change can happen. You can change, and I can change. May God help us as we continue this journey. Uh, in my next sermon... I will come to what I told you last time I will do. I've been use some illustrations of how the modern church has now become like the world. I'll try to use those illustrations. And then we'll move into the, the second point of the process of change. But I hope that by sharing these thoughts with you, this is not the direction I left the pulpit last Sunday and going. But I know that we can get easily discouraged by, you know, I, I can sound so negative in the pulpit sometimes, I'm aware of that. So discouraging sometimes. But when you take the history of the 18th century, you see the other side? God can change us. Because that's how he's going to bring about change the society in which we live. It must begin with the church. Is it going to begin with you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. 
thank thee for the historical example, not only in the first century with the Apostle Paul taking a stand and helping these believers to move away from worldliness to a renewed mind that is so transformed that is able to discern and vindicate the purpose of God and the will of God. I ask you to search our hearts. I pray that some word that was said this morning, some illustration that was used, some thought that was shared, would probe into our inner being and cause us to do a great examination process to see how far have we allowed ourselves to become worldly in our thinking and our values. Are we hiding our identity for fear of consequences? Are we trying to fit in for fear of being considered intolerant? Help us all to search our hearts, O oh Lord. May we desire deep within a true transformative change. As we work through this whole process and deal with this particular theme, I pray that you would give us the tools that we need, the method that we need, and the resources that we need to help us to achieve this change that you call upon us in Scripture. If there's anyone here this morning that's not saved, that's not a Christian, I don't have to ask if they need changing. I don't have to ask if they have worldly thinking. They are completely in the hand of the evil one. They are controlled and blinded by the God of the age who blinds them to the truth and the gospel. But light has come. And light shined in darkness. And the darkness could not comprehend it or hold it down. I pray this morning that the light of the gospel would be so clear and so powerful that it dispels that dark darkness within and point them to the light who is Christ and so that they put their faith and trust in him. Lord, if there be one that is not saved and have seen the truth on these matters and come to grips with their real flawed thinking and see the need of this change that Paul talks about, may this be a turning point in their life. May this be a transformative moment in their history. May they yield to him, yield to the Christ of God and find forgiveness and pardon, enlightenment, a new purpose, a new direction, a new ideology, a new philosophy, a new way of thinking, a new way of living. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Thank you for those who are here who are believers and I pray that what was said this morning and the past weeks have begun to do a work silently, quietly, yet genuinely in their hearts. That they begin to see things from a different perspective, begin to understand what's been happening and take whatever measures are needed to deal with this problem. 
May they not continue the status quo that mark their lives and characterize how they operated. But may they be more cautious and more judicious and more careful in these areas. We commit your word to you. We commit these dear people to you. We ask that your son be glorified and your name be exalted. In his name we pray. Amen. Be sure to join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us how even the church has allowed worldliness to infiltrate and destroy its testimony. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.